Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avina Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, here we are once again, ready to sit and learn from you. Uh, Lord, we open our hearts and we open our minds to uh, receive the words that you are giving to us. Uh, Father, we know that your words are uh, spirit and they are truth. We know that they are instructions for life. We know that they are uh, the very instructions that are going to keep us centered uh, within the Father's will to keep us doing the things that are pleasing to you, uh, not veering to the right or to the left, not adding or subtracting from what you would have us to do. Uh, we know that you have given us your uh, words so that um, we can be strong communities, so that we can be healthy families, so that we can be vibrant individuals, ambassadors for your kingdom. Uh, Lord, give us opportunities to share this precious word with those around us. That's another reason why you gave us this great commission to go into all the world and to preach the what? The gospel. It's those very words that are the gospel. What does Paul say? It's, it has the power of salvation unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we are not ashamed of this good news. Paul goes on to remind us in that wonderful passage from the book of Romans. So Father, give us a, a heart to, to, to take um, this gospel truth and to hide it deep in our heart. Lord, we know the psalmist reminds us that if we hide these words in our heart that we'll not sin against you. And yet it is these very um, uh, truths that are going to help us uh, uh, steer clear of uh, evil and of sin and of idolatry and of unrighteousness and disobedience. Uh, yet there's one more important ingredient that we need to remind ourselves of, and we're going to talk about this tonight, Lord. It is that your spirit has partnered with your word to bring about a dynamic relationship both with you and with our neighbors with those around us it's this it's these two greatest commandments that we read about loving god and loving our neighbor lord it is the holy spirit that enables us and empowers us to be able to love god and to love our neighbor the way we should and so there's this beautiful relationship between the spirit of god the word of god and the result that or the effects that it has on us 
as uh, children of God, that is to say, the Spirit of God and the Word of God empowers us to love God and to love our neighbors. So, Lord, we need to continue uh, to avail ourselves of these truths, not putting them away, but but uh, meditating on them day and night, like uh, the book of Joshua reminds us. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study the book of Galatians. I thank you for uh, the truths and the relevance of the book, especially as it impacts us in the Messianic community and as it gives us a greater um, uh, opportunity to dialogue with those in the Christian communities, those who don't uh, walk after what's called a Hebraic lifestyle. Um, help us to continue to, to have meaningful dialogues with them as well. Um, be with those who couldn't make it tonight for whatever reason. I pray that you'll raise them up and strengthen them and continue to uh, call them and draw them close to you. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory for all of these wonderful things. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me again for a study through the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and uh, I am a member of Congregation Kehilat Tunavah in Thornton, Colorado. Uh, I've been ordained as a Torah teacher there, and um, I've been a member there for almost 20 years. And if you're ever in the Denver area, just north of Denver's Thornton, you're welcome to come join us every Shabbat, uh, 1 p.m. on Saturdays. You can uh, come out and join us for Messianic Sabbath service, uh, listen to the sermon by pa uh, Head Pastor Mark McClellan. And if you're out there, tell him Ariel sent you. And you have to remember, I say all this because I'm coming to you live from South Korea. That's right, the other part of the world. But I'm delighted to be able to reach you via the internet. What a wonderful medium that we have here. I can talk into a headset here on the other side of the world. And no matter where you're at in the world, as long as you have got some a device that has an internet connection, then you and I can connect with one another and we can study Torah together. Isn't that wonderful? I think it is. So we're studying through the book of Galatians for a commentary that I put together a few years ago, and it's about 200 pages long if you're interested in printing it out. Head on out to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. T-E-T-Z-E t-o-r-a-h.com and right on the homepage at the top there's a link for the Galatians commentary and when you click on it you should find all of the relevant information to follow along with the audio portions that I upload after I record them and edit them um, I park them there on my website as well as the written notes are there and any other information that you might be interested in is all parked right there on my website if you want to join us live each week you got to set your clock for Saturday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time that's uh, the time zone that I'm keying off of and no matter where you're at in the world you're gonna have to kind of adjust your time to that it's actually Sunday where I'm at right now but um, for most uh, listeners who are in the United States it's Saturday evening so uh, we meet for 10 weeks each time each semester and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we pick up a, a new semester and start for 10 weeks again. And we've been going for over two years. Isn't that wonderful? And we're just going through the book, uh, the, the, the notes that I wrote, just kind of paragraph by paragraph, kind of lollygagging along, taking my time. I'm not in a hurry if you're not in a hurry. And um, we're in Chapter 5, so I think we're making great progress. Uh, who knows? Uh, join us live via Skype and uh, you'll be able to join in the after-study uh, chat session, which takes place uh, live via Skype as well. 
where we get to pick each other's brains, kind of question and answer, chat session, Q&A, whatnot. And I don't record it, so if you're interested in picking my brain, uh, asking questions about the Galatians notes, you got to come on out to the live study. i got to make this plug because those of you who are listening to this MP3 or audio file from iTunes, you're hearing me talk about the live chat. But then you don't hear the live chat in the recording. Yeah, that's right, because I don't record the live chat. you got to come out to the live chat if you want to chat with me and the other students who are joined with me in the live class tonight. Plus, you get to see my screen. It's interactive. We can point and click and talk about the Hebrew and the Greek and, and this and that. So it's, it's really a fun time. I hope you can make it sometime. All right, without further ado, let's date stamp our recording for tonight. We're in, uh, let's see, we're in week 86. We're in Galatians chapter 5, of course. Week 86, and this is, uh, wow, we're in a brand new year. I forgot to mention that as well. well Happy New Year to everyone. Or or what, is, what do we say in Korean? Sehebok mari baduseo. Uh, in Korean, which is roughly translated as Happy New Year, something like that. So, um... Uh, for all of those uh, those of you who have made it with me from the old year into the new, uh, today is January the 6th, 2018, and um, uh, I hope you can see my screen if you're with me in the live class. We're going to jump right into the liturgy now, and if you notice on my screen, I've just got the Hebrew pulled up. You're thinking, Ariel, where's the English? Aha! I'm not going to read the English for the liturgy tonight, and you'll find out why a little later on. And the liturgy passage is the familiar one that we're using in the section uh, that corresponds to what we're talking about in the um, Galatians notes. So we're going to be in Ezekiel again. We've been in this little passage section for a few weeks because of the way it talks about the Spirit of God uh, being poured into the house of Israel in the last days. And we'll pick up the reading for the liturgy in Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. We'll read just from 22 all the way down through verse 28, I think. Is that right? That looks about right. Yeah, 28. And um, we're using the Westminster Leningrad Codex version, which is the familiar Hebrew version that most Bibles are used to seeing. So, if you can see me on the screen right now, we're starting right over on the right side of the screen with verse 22 right there. The Hebrew reads, L'chein emor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai Adonai lo lama'anchem ani ose beit Yisrael ki im l'shem kadshi asher chelaltem bagoim asher batam sham. Batem sham. Verse 23 Vakidashti et shmi hagadol ham hulal bagoim asher chalaltem batoham vayadu hagoim ki ani adonai neum adonai adonai bahi kadshi bachem leenehim. Verse 24. Vakachti et chem min hagoim vakibadsti et chem michol haaratsut vehebeti. Etchem el admatchem. Verse 25. Alechem mayim tochorim uthartem mechol tumotechem mechol gululechem atahir etchem. Verse 26. Venatati lechem lev chadash vruach chadasha eten bekirbachem. Vahasiroti et lev haeven, mib sarachem venatati lachem lev basar. 
verse 27. Ve'et ruchi etain bechirbachem ve'asitem. And the final pasuk, verse 28. V'shavtem ba'aretz asher natate la'avotechem v'hitem li la'am ba'anuchi echelechem le'elohim. Okay, and that'll be our liturgy for the uh, from the Tanakh section. And you're saying, what about the English? I don't understand what you just said, Ariel. I don't read or speak Hebrew. Just wait for it. You're going to hear it in the commentary. That's why I didn't read the English tonight. All right, let's jump over to our Greek section. This time I will start with the English. And we're right in Galatians chapter 5. And we're reading through the last 11 verses of the chapter. And this is going to give us our uh, study section for tonight, our, our show notes, as it were. I hope you are, by the way, subscribed to the Galatians uh, commentary. If you are, then this allows you to receive the show notes or the section of um, commentary that we're going to be looking at each evening. I send them out. Um, a few days in advance so that you can look over them as long as well as the link uh, to the Skype class, the, you know, the, the, the live class. I send that link out about a few days, two or three days in advance. And then if you are also subscribed to the Galatians notes, then you can, once, once I uh, make the audio recording each week and then do the editing, uh, usually a few days later, I upload it to iTunes, which then sends a copy over to my website. Actually, I upload it to my website, which then sends a copy to the iTunes store as well so that the MP3 is available. And if you're in, if you're subscribed to the Galatians notes, you'll get that email from me that indicates that the the uh, live uh, MP3 is available for you to go back and listen in case you didn't make it to the live cl- uh, Skype class. You guys understand? So I encourage you to uh, subscribe to the to the weekly commentary. We um subscribe to the uh, Galatians commentary. How do I do that? It's right there on the Galatians page on my website. All right, Galatians commentary. Click on that, and there'll be a link there that that talks about join the Galatians notes. All right, with that, um, that getting uh, being said, let's look at the um, passage out of the book of Galatians that we're going to be reading from for our liturgy. This is Galatians chapter five from the English Standard Version, and uh, we'll start in verse sixteen and read down through the end of the passage, these eleven verses, and then we'll go back and read the Greek from that as well. Okay, the English says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the... I'm sorry, I haven't been reading the verses. That was verse 16 and 17, starting in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, uh, impurity, sensuality. Verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Verse 21. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, starting in verse 23 now, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right, let's go back and look at the Greek. Uh, let's see, which version do I want to use? Um, I think I'll use the, the interlinear one more time, even though it's kind of busy-looking page. And the reason I'm using that is because I want to point out one or two words in the, in the passage and uh, uh, show you something kind of interesting that you may not have known. So let's go to the interlinear chapters. By the way, I'm using BibleHub.com, which is a wonderful website if you're interested in looking at... Uh, Hebrew and Greek tools, and you're interested in what the underlying original texts are. So, uh, we've got the interlinear pulled up, and let's start in verse uh, 16 again, which is uh, kind of designated as living in the Spirit, according to this version. And when we get to one of the verses, I'll go back and, and read the Greek. There's something I want to uh, highlight that corresponds to the English something important for us to grab a hold of. Uh, the Greek says, Lego de pneumati parapateta, kai epithemian, sarkas u me telesete. Verse 17, He gar epitheme, kata tu pneumatas, ta de pneuma, kata te sarkas, tauta gar alelois, antiketai, hina me ha ien felete, tauta poeta. Verse 18, E de pneumati agestha uk este hupanaman. Verse 19, Fa de esten ta erga te sarkas hatina esten pornea akatharsia azelgea. Verse 20, E dololatria pharmakea. Echthrai, Eris, Zelos, Thumoi, Erethei, Dikastasiai, Hyresis, verse 21, Phthanoi, Methai, Komoi, Kai, Tahomoia, Tautois, Ha Prolego, Human, Kathos, Proepan, Hati Hoi Ta Toyauta, Prasantes Basilean theu u cleona mesusen. Verse twenty two. Ho de carpas tu penumatas esten. Agape chara irene. Macrothumia. Cristates agathusune. Pistis. Starting at verse twenty three. Prautes in cratea cata ton. Toyoton. Uc esten namas. Verse 24, Hoi de tu Christu Jesu ten sarca estarusan, sun tois pathemesen kai teis epithemias. And verse 25, E zomen pneumati, pneumati kai stoikomen. And the final one, verse 26, Me genomatha kenadaxoi alelus prakolumenai, Alelois fatantuntes. All right, let me go back up to verse 20. I'm sorry, verse, uh, what is it, 21? Uh, where was it? I'm sorry. Give me a moment here. 
It is actually a verse, yeah, verse 21, uh, where Paul says, um, he's in the middle of this list of the fruits of, of the, the works of the flesh. Um, and in the, starting in the verse 21, he's, he picks up with this list. He says, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, as to which I forewarn you, even as I warned you before, that those who uh, do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in the Greek, um, after listing all of these works of the flesh, um uh, uh you know which are contrasted to the the the, the fruit of the spirit the ergat sarakas are the contrast to the 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 fruit of the spirit um in verse 21 he men- after mentioning all these things he warns us that those who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of god and i've heard some people say well you know I was guilty of doing some of those things before I became a believer. You know, I, I regularly got drunk, uh, you know, envied, uh, involved in factions, uh, strife, you know, fits of rage, jealousies, things like that, sensuality, idolatry. And it's true that even believers from time to time struggle with um, subduing the old nature. You know, we fall into temptation from time to time. We, we fail to to say no to the flesh and as a result sometimes we get caught up emotionally and uh, we're out of we we go out of control from time to time and so i've heard people say well you know paul mentions this this list of things and he says those who do such things won't inherit the kingdom of god what about me ariel i did those things even, even before i became a believer and then after i become a believer sometimes i still do those things from time to time because i do those things will i will i inherit the kingdom of god and they they kind of stress out a little bit. They, they they wonder. And we're going to talk about this in the commentary, but I wanted to bring it out in the Greek before we actually get to the commentary. But in verse 21, he says, those who do such things. And it's important to know whenever you're looking through the New Testament and you encounter Greek verbs, it's very helpful if you can to go back and to the Greek and look at the uh, tense of the verbs and the mood of the verb and the, um, the, 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 the just um, parse the verb right? Conjugate the verb, we would say, um, uh, as you parse the verse. Conjugate the verb. And since I've got the interlinear pulled up and it shows me, when it says uh, those who do such things, right here, the Greek verb doing is this Greek word uh, prosantes. And if I click on this uh, Strong's number 4238, it's going to tell me this verb, the root word. We can see it here. The root word is praso, right here, from where we get the conjugation uh, prasantes. So this verb uh, praso, uh, the short definition is do, fair, require, or do, perform. Thus we get the translation where Paul says, those who do such things. But if we look down at the word help studies that I have here in this particular version of my Greek uh, lexicon here, uh, it's going to remind me that this verb praso is properly the active process in performing or accomplishing a deed and implying what is done as a regular practice, i.e. a routine or a habit. Understand now? So it's not necessarily that Paul says those who do such things. Let me go back to the Greek again. It's that if we look at at what uh, the underlying Greek is, the part of speech is a verb as we parse this word. The tense is present tense, so it's things that we are presently that we presently do. But notice that the mood is a participle, meaning uh, just when you hear this word participle, just think ing, add the verb, add whatever do, and then ing. Thus, it is a present tense doing 
something that you do as a regular habit, something you do as a part of your lifestyle. The voice is active, so it's not passive. It's something that you do versus something that's being done to you. And we don't really have to look at the nominative case, the masculine gender, and the plural number. I'm just focusing firstly on the tense, the mood, and the voice of this particular Greek verb. It's a present tense, active participle. What does that mean for us? It means that when Paul says those who do such things, it's really Paul saying that those who are whose lifestyles are characterized by doing these things. In other words, you're over and over doing them. And we're going to see in, when we get to my commentary that it is an indication that perhaps there's not spiritual regeneration within you if these are the things that you characteristically do over and over and over and over. It's a part of your lifestyle. It's your habit. It's your regular pattern of thinking and acting. If that's the case, then then perhaps there has been no spiritual regeneration. And that is why Paul can say those who do such things or those who are doing such things on a regular basis, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why wouldn't they inherit? Because there's no, been no spiritual regeneration on the inside and it's evidence because there's no fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is absent and that's why you have the works of the flesh that are dominating your life as an unbeliever. Make sense? Okay, very good. Alright, let's go to my commentary and pick up the reading. We're only going to study verses 19 through 23 tonight. So 19 20, 21, 22, 23, those five verses. And and in my commentary, I've combined some of the verses in groups uh, because of the way the, um, uh, the subject material is uh, combined in the passage itself. So we're only going to read through the top of page 170 in my commentary down through the middle of page 172. So it's only two short pages, so I think the commentary will probably be short tonight. At least I hope it will be. I, I actually try not to go over an hour, but I always do. But I'll, tr I'll try my best, all right, uh, to keep it, sh keep it to an hour. All right, let's look at my commentary. Top of page 170. Um, recall that last week we read this uh, very, very helpful commentary from uh, uh, John MacArthur, who I wrongfully identify as doctor. He's only got it. He's got an honorary doctorate degree. Uh, but it's, he didn't actually get the theological degree. But nevertheless, um, Pastor MacArthur, John MacArthur, uh, was talking about being filled with the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit, living by the Spirit. Of course, we referenced Ephesians 5.18, where Paul um, admonishes us to be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is a, 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 a commandment that's given to us as believers to be filled with the Spirit. And we're in this topic in the middle of Galatians about walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, um, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. And it's this whole Spirit a filled life or to be spiritual if you want to if you want to look at that way. So in verse 16 Paul says walk by the spirit. And then in um verse 18 he he says I'm sorry in verse 17 he says the desires of the spirit. And then in verse 18 he says uh you should be led by the spirit. And then in verse 22 he says the fruit of the spirit. And then uh, when we get down to verse 25, it says, if we live by the Spirit, and then we also will keep in step with the Spirit. So notice the whole theme about Spirit. This is one of the more heavily concentrated parts of the Bible where Paul keeps emphasizing the work and life 
the fruit, the, the 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 regenerative process of the spirit, the the result of of living a life that's controlled by the spirit, and all of this. Uh, another part that we could uh, con- uh, compare this with and draw a lot of rich uh, um, instruction for us would be Romans chapter eight. Uh, starting about, about the middle of the passage there, uh, middle of that chapter of Romans chapter 8, that's also another part that talks about uh, walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. So, with the theme of keeping in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, which are all themes that are interrelated, right? There's no need to, to draw this this strong contrast between what does it mean to walk by the Spirit being versus being filled with the Spirit versus what are the desires of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, etc. Et so they're all kind of interrelated because we're interacting with the Spirit. With that uh, uh, introduction from last week, we move this week into um, this, this list. And when we start in verse 19, Paul's going to um, explain to the Galatian Gentiles there that there are two... There are two kingdoms that they can be um, citizens of. They can either be a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, which is the old man, the, the, the those who have not yet been regenerated by the Spirit, those who have not yet professed faith in Yeshua and follow through with their profession, those who are still unsaved, in a word, to use 21st century lingo. Um, if, if you're unsaved, you belong to the kingdom of darkness. Um, and contrastingly, if you have been saved, then if you are saved, then you belong to the kingdom of light. And those who are members of the kingdom of light are those who are filled, who are filled with the Spirit. They have been purchased by the blood of Yeshua, and they have been brought out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And so Paul's going to draw this sharp contrast between the old man and the new man, the unsaved and the saved, those who are in one kingdom and those who are in the other kingdom. And he's using this term called flesh flesh, uh, the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X. And he uses this quite often in his gospels, in his letters, where he talks about the works of the flesh or something like that, the, 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 the old man, the fleshly nature, the carnal nature, etc., etc. It refers to the old nature that has not yet been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So look at, notice the works of the flesh, which if you're if you've been following along in the commentary and in the reading through the book, the works of flesh are closely tied to the works of the law. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they both use the same uh, Greek word erga. There, works, works, right? The works of the law and the works of flesh are connected to one another because outside of the spirit's regenerative power, the old man has no. Um, no way of escaping the 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 domination of the old life, the 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 power of the flesh in his life. Uh, from time to time, he can he can push back, he can resist against the old nature. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the old nature is going to win out. And that's why we need the remedy called new covenant. We need the power of Yeshua because in and of ourselves, we are uh, what is it? What it was say? What does it say in the uh, the Calvinistic tulip? We are um, we are totally deprived, total depravity. The T of tulip. There's this total depravity. We we cannot escape the original sin that we've been born into. Only the power of God can break break us free from that prison. All right. So verse 19 through 21, where we start reading, top of page 170. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We read that in our liturgy. Here's what I have to say in my comments. Very short and to the point. Listen up. Paul provides a sample list of what life is characterized by when the old nature is in control instead of the Spirit of God in our lives. And I mention this in our commentary as its relevance towards uh, keeping Torah and things like that because basically, unless you have the Spirit of God living within you, then no amount of Torah observance can bring you to a point where you can subjugate the flesh ultimately, where you can set yourself free from the prison called old man or, or flesh or old nature. You understand what I'm saying? There's no amount of law-keeping or Bible reading or prayers or going to church or, or, or thumbing through rosaries or saying rosaries or saying Hail Marys or, or any of that. None of that is going to set you free from the power of sin in your life. It's only the power of God that comes into your life and, and, and does the heart transplant that we talked about in the Ezekiel passage. Takes out the heart of flesh and replaces, I'm sorry, takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. And this is important for us to understand as we encounter and engage in keeping the Torah as Jews and Gentiles. Unless you surrender to Messiah first, then your Torah keeping is going to amount to self-effort and ultimately is going to be proven to be self-serving. That's the crucial ingredient that Paul wants the Galatians to understand is if you're going to go down this path of of conversion to Judaism, to Jewish identity, uh, become involved with the works of the law, etc., etc., Torah keeping and maintenance of Torah and and Jewish identity and and physical circumcision and all of that, if you're going to uh, bypass the, the regenerative work of the Spirit, then you're you're not going to really be changing much in your life. You're going to go from an old man Gentile to an old man Jew, or as I like to say, you're going to go from a you're going to go from a dirty old Gentile to a dirty old Jew, and there will be no change on the inside. There will be no change on the heart. There'll be no circumcision of the heart, and therefore your sins are just going to pile up over and over again in your life. And in in the end of the day, by the end of the day, and Judgment Day on Yom Hadin, as we say in Judaism, God is not going to consider you righteous. You're not joining the family of righteousness, of the the, the family of the righteous, like Papa Abraham, like a righteous Abraham. You're not uh, joining that family. All right. So this is the harsh reality I say in my commentary. The harsh reality of this passage is, in my opinion, the very real possibility that if a person's life is indeed regularly marked by actions similar to this list, like we talked about, which of course we know is not all-inclusive. So, But if a person's life is regularly marked by this, if this is the, the pattern of living that he has, if this is his regular habit, his regular lifestyle, if this is the mindset he find, that he finds himself in over and over again, then perhaps that person, I say in my notes, has not been truly born again. John uh, in First John, the book of First John, John talks about those who walk in darkness and hate their brother have not seen the light. They have not known God. They they've deceived themselves. I'm paraphrasing some of the passages there, and the point is that there's a, a litmus test that we can perform on ourselves if we claim to na- know the name of Yeshua. Examine our own fruit. Examine our own lives. Examine our hearts. 
We really need to be introspective. We need to check ourselves from time to time. Yes, like I said, from time to time, we're going to trip up. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall back into old patterns of sinful behavior, etc., etc. But the heart that has been turned over to God, that's been given to Messiah, is the heart that cries out for forgiveness because we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. And it's that conviction of the Holy Spirit that's going to remind us that we're stepping out of line and that we need to come back in line with God's Word. And so if you don't have that conviction, if you don't have that struggle going on on the inside between the old nature that's still residual and the new nature that has been um, uh, implanted by God's Spirit, then if you don't have that, that, that struggle on the inside, then perhaps you need to check yourself. Perhaps you're not born again. I say in my notes, again, getting ahead of myself here, those who belong to Christ have in fact crucified the sinful flesh with its passions and desires already. It is a spiritual reality in the mystery of Messiah that 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 the, the 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 crucified sinful flesh with his passions has already been crucified, and yet we have the struggle, right? We have the you can read about the struggle from Paul's personal perspective in Romans chapter seven, where he says, you know, the things that I want to do I don't do, and the things that I don't do are the things that I actually shouldn't want to do, right? I've got this this cognitive dissonance going on inside me, this 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 struggle of you know the the the, the struggle of holiness, this 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 difficulty of, of pressing in and doing what I know I should be doing, which is right, and yet sin, you know, I want to do right, but sin is right there next to me, this sin that's still housed up inside me. It's a spiritual reality in the mystery of Messiah. Even though true believers occasionally slip up and sin from time to time, our lives should not be characterized by such slip-ups. One pastor said it well. He said, "Um, sanctification is essentially the process of as we get older in Christ, we sin less and less. That's a very kind of simplified way of, of defining sanctification. It's the process of less and less sin as we grow in Messiah, as we get older in our walk with Christ. Um, we, we should be growing in matters of holiness as we put on the words of the Bible, as we let the water, what do we say, what do we read in the New Testament, uh, let the washing of the water of the word you know, flow, wash over us. And the, the Holy Spirit, of course, uses the tool called the Word of God to, to continually convict us and cleanse us. And as we, uh, what do we read again in First John? As we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's this, this cycle of, of uh, we fall into sin and then we confess that sin. God, uh, God re- forgives us of our sin. And then we, we strive to walk forward in the power of the Spirit, not to sin again. And as we discipline ourselves, and as we grow in, in Messiah, we continually put off sin, and thus we sin less and less and less. So, makes sense. Um, Paul warns those who claim to belong to Yeshua, yet allow the acts of the sinful nature to dominate and control their lives, right? This warning is that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I say in my notes, I don't believe he is saying that the acts of the sinful nature have the ominous ability to somehow uproot the work of Christ in our lives, Rather, I believe he's saying that if we are consistently and unremorsefully sinning, right, there's that Greek active participle, right, ongoing uh, uh, participle, uh, you know, it's present tense, 
if we are actively doing these things, the sinning, uh, then even though we profess faith in Yeshua, we just might be fooling ourselves about being a genuine child of God. Amen. So it's 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 vitally important that we, uh, especially we in the Messianic movement who claim to to have returned to the roots of our faith, the ancient Hebrew paths, right? Wherein lies the blessing. We're rediscovering that the Torah is relevant for us as Gentiles, Gentile believers. Those of you who've come out of Christian backgrounds where you were taught regularly that the law has been done away with, suddenly. Uh, your eyes have been opened to this reality that the Torah is relevant for you. It's it's it it it's a part of your everyday living. Suddenly you're gravitating towards things Hebraic, etc., etc. And yet we need to re- keep reminding ourselves that there's the very real possibility that we are going to continue to sin from time to time. And if the sin is a regular part of our daily life, especially with you know the habitual sins, the the, the what. You know the things that easily trip us up, things, or as the KJV calls it, things, the sins that easily beset us. It's those little foxes that spoil the vine, as we read in the Bible as well. We've got to take a mat. We've got to get mastery over those things by the help of God, by the help of His Spirit, by the help of of um, supportive communities that we belong to. Get yourself plugged into a community where they're teaching the Word of God, where they're teaching the whole Bible, where they are preaching sanctification and spirit filling. Get yourself plugged in to a church group like that or a small group, a home Bible study or a family group or something to that effect. Find yourself in a position where you can be accountable to someone for those um, habitual sins, right? Uh, if you're a man and you find yourself struggling with lust, you, you you find it hard to bounce your eyes when you look at another woman. It doesn't matter whether you're married or single. Um, uh, we, we as men shouldn't allow our eyes to, to, to go where excuse me, to go wherever they want to. It's part of the old nature to, to, to allow the lust to wash over us emotionally and to allow that, that, um, that, uh, uh, what do we say, that, that, um, physiological reaction to take place when we see, uh, something that we shouldn't be. You guys know what I'm talking about. I don't have to, don't have to get too graphic here. And the point is, if you're finding yourself struggling with all of that, struggling with, with, with bouncing your eyes or looking at women or, or even looking at men, God forbid, right? But if you find yourself, typically men lust after women. So it, the point is, get yourself a, 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 a someone that you can be accountable to, someone that can regularly pray for you and hold your hold you up in prayer and lift you up before the Father and someone that you can kind of confess your weaknesses to and, and they can, can pray with you. And, and you know what I'm saying? So, all right. It just doesn't work to be alone. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself an easy target for the adversary who roars or goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, we read in the Apostolic Scriptures. All right. So with that part having said, let's move down into the fruit of the Spirit, the part that most of us are familiar with as we read through the book of Galatians chapter 5. This is the passage that most of us have memorized. There's 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 going to be a healthy amount of biblical sermons on this particular passage. Let's read it. Starting in verse 22 and 23, we read the first part of this passage. Uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right There's nine uh, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Against such things there is no law. All right. This is actually, here's what I say in my comments. This is actually one of the first passages that I memorized while growing up in a Baptist school. Of course, in a Baptist school, we learned it from the KJV. But nevertheless, um, I'm so glad I memorized this particular passage. And the first part of the passage is self-explanatory, in in my opinion. Um, And, surprise, surprise, 
I heartily agree with every single Christian commentary that I consulted on the first part. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Those of you who are familiar with me as a Torah teacher know that regularly I take shots at Christian commentators and, and, and Christian sermons and things of the like because of the absence of pro Torah sentiments that I find in those comments, commentaries, and in sermons. But when I go through, when I look through the plethora of Christian commentaries that I have on this, on the first uh, part of this passage, verse 22, um, I, I agree with almost 100% of them, which is great. It's the last section, right? The part where he says, against such things there is no law. When I get to the commentaries on that part, that's where I have to breathe a sigh of disappointment. So let's read. All right, so I regularly disagree with the last part. That's the sermons on this last part. Luther, Martin Luther's comments here are going to be representative of your um, of your garden variety Christian sentiments on the last uh, phrase that says, "Against such things there is no law." Here's what Martin Luther has to say: "Quote Galatians 5:23. Against such there is no law. There is a law, of course." But it does not apply to those who bear these fruits of the Spirit. The law is not given for the righteous man. A true Christian conducts himself in such a way that he does not need any law to warn or to restrain him. He obeys the law without compulsion. The law does not concern him. As far as he is concerned, there would not have to be any law." And the footnote number 159 shows that I lifted that from Martin Luther Galatians chapter 5 commentary, which is actually available on, online for free at the www.blueletterbible.org website. All right? And again, this is typical, right? Typical Christian exegesis on this passage, the, 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 the heritage that the, the Gentile Christian church has um, inherited from probably the late first century going on into the second century building to a crescendo during the third and fourth centuries with the edicts and the councils that met together to decide on what should we as Gentile Christians do with the law of Moses, with the ceremonial and civil parts of the law that make us look Jewish if we keep them, what should we do with Judaism as a religion, and basically the decision from that early, those earliest times Again, this has started as early as the the late first century, with probably with with Marcion and 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 uh, church fathers of the like. But the, basically, the general sentiment began to shift towards this this Jewish. I'm sorry, towards this Gentile triumphal triumphalism. I'm sorry, Gentile triumphalism, where basically this kind of a replacement theology, the supersessionism, uh, crept in as as, in my opinion, was as actually a diabolical. Uh, aspect of the early formation of the church, of the Gentile church. In other words, this this idea that we don't need Judaism as a religion anymore as Gentile Christians. We don't need the, the ceremonial and civil parts of the law as Christians. We still need the moral parts because we can't walk in, in absolute lawlessness or antinomianism. The church at least came to that conclusion. But sadly, they divided the law into three parts, moral, ceremonial, civil. And the moral parts are the parts that we as Christians can keep without making us look Jewish versus the ceremonial and the civil parts, you know, the Sabbaths, the, the circumcisions, the ritual purities, the festivals, and all of those things, the kosher laws. All of those things, if we keep them, will still resemble Jewish Judaism. And because we're not Jews, we're Gentiles, then we need to, to throw off those parts of the, the Mosaic law. And indeed, 
at the very early stage, all of the the Jewishness of the of the Bible kind of was washed away, um, and unfortunately, it, uh, for the last 1,900 years or so, that is basically the predominant uh, heritage that has been handed down from one church leader to the next as kind of a an unbroken chain of succession right up into the 21st century. And many Christians, Gentile Christians, are not aware of that history, of that part of church history. If you're not familiar with that, go back and read it. It's it's available in any his, basic history book. Um, and uh, so I'm not telling you anything that's like some hidden secret knowledge, okay? So so it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, that Martin Luther is going to... Uh, uh, spin his commentary that way because it creates a quandary uh, for the Jewish believer who seeks to continue down a path that makes him not only look Jewish but makes him look Torah observant. So let's read my commentary and see what I have to say about this. You guys already know where I'm going to go with this. Top of page 171. When one properly reads through and studies the Torah with unbiased eyes. And what I mean by that is without that that Gentile Christian bias that says that the law is done away with, that that Judaism has been replaced with Christianity, that that the people of God, uh, the Israel as the people of God have been replaced with the church as the people of God. So that bias, that bias that says that we no longer need the ceremonial civil, etc., etc. All right, that's a bias that we that we approach the text with. If we are, if we read the text and take that bias away, and we allow our eyes to be opened, right? Then then one actually does not encounter laws without love and rules without relationship. I heard one pastor describe it that way. I think he was describing legalism. He said legalism are laws without love and rules without relationship. And I heartily agree with his definition of legalism. They are laws without love, rules without relationship. Yet, it's too easy as the as the traditional Christian church today, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to offend those Gentile Christian readers who are listening to my podcast and reading my commentaries, and I'm not trying to offend you. Please don't misunderstand my sentiment or the tone of my voice here. I'm not even trying to be sarcastic. I'm, I'm really trying to, to, to give us a heartfelt warning or shock us back into the reality that that there is a heritage, a, a bias, a hermeneutic that is that it, that is inherent in Christianity that that many people are unaware of. That when we start to look at the Torah and we say, "Oh, that's just a bunch of rules. That's just a bunch of laws." God doesn't want that. God wants relationship. We fail to understand that that type of that type of mindset is feeding into the devil's lie that the laws of God don't matter for a believer. And that is a lie from the adversary. I'm telling you people that God wouldn't say the things that he says about the Torah, the, the language that he uses through the, through the Torah, through the five books. And we're going to read here the, 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 the Ezekiel passage in the English here in a moment. God wouldn't use the language that he does about the words of God if he thought they were irrelevant, if he thought they were laws without love or rules without relationship. That's simply the, the wrong mindset. It's wrong-headed. So I'm, I'm challenging you to, to rethink um, your relationship to the Torah as a believer. And why is that so important? It's because of what I said and mentioned in my prayer. It's because of what we read about in the apostolic scriptures and because of what we read about in the entire Bible itself. Without the objective words of God, we're going to be easy targets not only for sin in our life, but 
for um, uh, unrighteousness and we're going to be an easy target for heresy. We're going to be an easy target for dis, uh, deception. We're going to be an easy target for false theologies, false religion, false ideologies. In a word, it's the objective words of God that keep us anchored and rooted in the truth of God. Omain, Omain. We must have the words of God written on our hearts. We must have the words of God written on our minds. We must have the objective words of God before us if we are to be uh, a strong um, defense against the onslaught of secular humanism, of, of, of um, uh, false religions, of false ideologies, of false philosophies, of, of human philosophies, of um, all the other uh, um, you know, relativism that is permeating the world today, that's, that's uh, uh, you know, filling up the internet these days, that's, that's, that's uh, saturated uh, within the, the media, to the, the media saturated with all of this, this man's nonsense. And the only way that we can defend ourselves against all of that is to go back to the Word of God. The Word of God is, the, is, is that, that, that solid, uh, um, what do we say, that lighthouse that is going to keep us anchored in the truths of what, what God would have for us. Of course, don't forget that it is the Spirit of God that explains the Word of God. It is the power of the Messiah within us that helps us to interact with the Word of God and to live holy lives. But it's, but it's the Word of God itself that, that the Holy Spirit locks onto. It's, it's the, 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 the truths of the Scripture that keep us anchored uh, so that we're not tossed back and forth with all the winds of doctrine that are being, uh, that, that is, which have reached basically gale force strength in today's um, voices today. You know, you step outside your door and, and the, the wind is blowing, the, the, the winds of false theology are blowing so strong that you're nearly knocked off your feet by that, okay? All right, let me step off my soapbox and get back to my commentary. So I uh, pick up in my reading here. Um, uh, when we read through the Torah with, with unbiased eyes, one does not encounter laws without love and rules without relationship. Instead, what you're going to find is you're going to encounter a God that's brimming with love for his people Israel. A God so in love with and concerned about them Right. This is if when you start reading through the Old Testament, for example, as a Christian, and you start reading about Israel, what you're going to find is a God that's so in love with and concerned about his people that he rescues them from the clutches of lawless Egyptian bondage and brings them to the foot of Har Sinai, that's Mount Sinai, to personally hand them his gracious and righteous law. God's voice spoke from the mountain that day, right? Read Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. This is the very same law, I go on to say, that Paul, in the New Testament, quote-unquote, calls holy, righteous, and good, right? He calls it holy, righteous, and good in Romans 7.12. This is the same law that Paul calls spiritual in Romans 7.14. This is the same law that Paul says he delights in with his inner being in Romans 7.21. This is the same law that Paul confesses he is subject to with his mind in Romans 7.25. Are you guys beginning to see my point yet? Right? You read through the Torah with unbiased eyes, and this is what you're going to find. I think this is what Paul did after his eyes were opened, right? The scales dropped from his eyes. And what did he do? He didn't have a New Testament. 
He had to turn to the pages of the Tanakh in order to understand this 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 Messiah that he had not seen all of his life, this this Yeshua who was hidden from him all of his life as a religious Pharisaic Jew. He did not understand who this Jesus was. But then suddenly the Spirit removed the scales, his eyes were opened, and what did he do? He turned right back to the Tanakh and began to read again with eyes afresh. And what did he see? Those are the things that he saw, the, the things I just described there. So I go on to say, I think it hardly considered of the Torah or of Paul's writings to pin Paul with the concept of identifying the law of God as worthless when it comes to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't think it's Paul that would identify the law as worthless when it comes to identifying with those things. You understand what I'm saying here? Paul now has his eyes opened by the Spirit so he can see that there is a relevance to the words of God. There is no other truth that God is going to uphold, that God is going to champion, that God is going to confirm in the life of a believer, whether he be Jew or Gentile. God's not going to confirm and strengthen the words of of the ancient sages of Paul's day, the proto-rabbis and the the the, the, the Pharisaic and Sadducean uh, leaders of Paul's day, the the the, the Jewish sects that were uh, re, uh, more and more rejecting Gentiles in their midst because of these 18 edicts that were passed in the 20s of Paul's day, that uh, you know the House of Hillel had uh, compiled and dis- decided that the Gentile had no place among the righteous of Israel unless he became a Jew first, according to these 18 measures, the 18 edicts that were passed. And this kind of paved the way for a halakha that was rejecting Gentiles unless they became proselytes. This was not the gospel. That's not love. That's not um, love for your God, love for God or love for one's neighbor. That, that's rules without relationship. That's laws without love. That whole halakha of the Jewish-only Torah, that whole halakha of the works of the law that brings a person into a righteousness, uh, supposedly, right, a, a, a Jewish-only Israel, all of that nonsense. God's not going to endorse that program. God's not going to get behind the the Stoic philosophers and the the the, the um the religious cycle babble of Paul's day that that taught that there was a pantheon of gods, right? The the whole the Stoicheon, the Greek philosophies of Paul's day, the the, the you know the mysteries and the the Gnosticism, the the, the proto Gnosticism that was rising, uh, the, the the nascent Gnosticism that was uh, becoming uh, ever increasing in in the first century, uh, all this. Uh, philosophical uh, gobbledygook that that you know the top that 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 the elements controlled the the destinies and the fates of the person and you know that your life was tied to the to the the stars and the 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 what do we call it that today the um uh, not astronomy but the, the astrology and all of that God's not going to endorse all of that that nonsense that's the wisdom of man that's weak right that's going to fall and that's going to fail. The only thing that God's going to stand behind, the only thing that Spirit is going to get behind, the only thing that the Spirit of Messiah is going to to place within our heart, we read it, it's the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So it's the Word of God that's going to uphold the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the fruitness, the the gentleness, the self-control. It's the Spirit of God working in concert with the Word of God that's going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Of course, I go on to say my commentary, we know and understand that the law in and of itself 
without the commensurate spirits indwelling is nothing more than, as Tim Haig likes to call it, letters on parchment. If you take the Old Testament and you read it without the Spirit of God, that's basically the letter of the law. It's the it's the um it's the old way of the letter, as Paul describes it in um, in Romans, right? It's or the Book of Hebrews talks about it. It's the, it's the old covenant. Um, basically, if you've got the Bible, if you're reading through the Bible and you're not yet saved, well, then the words of God have not been activated within your mind and within your heart. We need the Spirit to to latch onto those words that you're reading and to bring them alive to you. It's only the Spirit of God that can do that. Without that, they're just letters on parchment. It's no different than reading your a secular novel, you know, reading a Harry Potter novel or reading Time magazine. If you're reading the Bible without the Spirit of God opening your eyes to see Jesus in the pages, then you're just reading letters. And this is true, I might add, no matter if you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament. You guys understand my point there? So, the proper position to take when studying law and spirit is not to contrast them against one another, I say in my notes, but rather to complement them one with another. When Paul is talking about the law, and he's talking about the spirit, it's not a strong contrast between the words of God and the spirit of God. They actually work together like hand in glove. Uh, the the spirit uses the tool called the Torah to to bring about the process of what we call um, sanctification in the life of a child of God. It's the Word of God which creates the objective standard for the Spirit of God to remind the child of God of, so that he can walk down the road called righteousness. Understand? But what Paul is trying to contrast more often when we read those letters is not is not law versus spirit, but flesh versus spirit. You understand the big difference? Flesh represents old nature, old man, sinful nature. It's the unregenerate man that Paul contrasts with the spirit man. Old man, new man. Flesh versus spirit. Old man is the flesh. New man is the spirit. And that's the strong and stark contrast that you're going to read over and over again in the letters of Paul. And the part where we get tripped up on, for instance, when we read through, say like Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, um, especially chapter 6 and 7, where Paul's doing this heavy concentrated theology, uh, didactic teaching about the, the old nature, the sinful nature, the works of the flesh, uh, and things like that, and, and how that the consequences and, and the, the penalty of that old nature is death. And then in chapter 7, he moves into this, this reality of how the, the old nature has this diabolical relationship with the law of God. Right? They are this, this unholy dynamic duel. Right? They're like the evil uh, doppelganger versions of Batman and Robin or something. Right? The law and the flesh. They come together as a dynamic duo to work against a person to bring him into bondage, into condemnation, into ultimately death. And it's a strange relationship. It's strange because uh, without the Spirit of God, that's what the Word of God does. It will condemn you. It will ultimately uh, continue to cause you to sin more and more to the point where the law just laughs in your face and shows you that you're an unregenerate sinner and that you're worthy and deserving of condemnation, punishment, and ultimately spiritual death. And that's all the law can do for you. It's powerless to change the, the heart within you, the heart of stone. It has no power to do that in and of itself. What does Paul say? It is weakened 
by the flesh itself. So the flesh, the unregenerate flesh, the heart of stone, like Ezekiel describes, and the Torah of God, they they work together as this unholy duo. This this like I said, this 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 dynamic duo, albeit, albeit the, the evil counterparts of it. They work together t- to destroy a man, and it, and they'll actually condemn you in the end. And so you need the Spirit of God to set you free, not from the Word of God. You need the Spirit of God to set you free from the flesh, to set you free from the condemnation that's brought on by the sinful nature. You need the Spirit of God to to, to do the heart transplant like we read, we're read. we going to read here in Ezekiel in a moment. To, to take out the stony heart and to replace it with a heart of flesh. And so once that happens, your relationship to the Spirit of God changes. You understand that? This is where the Christian church grossly misunderstood this for the last 1900 years or so. Not all of them, but 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 generally speaking, there's a, there's this misunderstanding about our relationship to the law of God, to the Torah of God, and it's because of this bias. This anti, I think it's an anti-Semitic bias, an anti-Jewish bias. It's it's an it's like I said, it 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 crept in, it got planted at the earliest stages of the first century, where the Gentile church in Rome. That's why Paul had to write the entire letter to the book of Rome, uh, the book of Romans to warn the Gentile Christians about this this growing uh, anti-Jewishness, this growing uh, uh, sentiment of, of um, replacement theology, of supersessionism, this idea that we don't need the Jewish cradle that birthed us. We don't need the authorities of the Jewish synagogue to govern over us. We don't need the, 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 the Torah of Israel, the scriptures of Israel, to govern our everyday living. We are the new people of God. We're the Johnny-come-latelys. We're the new Israel of God, uh, etc., etc. We've replaced the old people of God. They're the old. We're the new. Etc. Etc. All of that formed the, the the diabolical, which means demonic seeds of replacement theology and supersessionism that crept into the early first century Gentile church, and it has existed down to this very day. And it is that same uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Torah uh, sentiment that drives the, the commentaries that you read today that say that when the Spirit of God takes up residence within a believer, that the Torah gets pushed out of the picture. No, no, sir. In point of fact, it's not the Torah that gets pushed out of the picture. It's the sinful propensities that get pushed out of the picture. It's the heart of stone that gets taken out of the picture. It is the condemnation that's brought on by the old man and his relationship to the law as an old man that gets taken out of the picture. You guys understand the big difference. It's a huge difference. Okay, so... um, uh, where did where did I leave off here in my commentary? I'm sorry, I keep I just have the spirit of preaching on me today. I feel like a, instead of being a teacher, I feel like moving into preaching. I don't know. Someone out there needs to hear that today, as as the as the Pentecostals would say, pastor would say, right? Someone out there needs to hear that this sermon today, and that's why maybe the spirit of God is moving on me like He's doing. So I'm sorry for going over, but blame it on the spirit of God Himself. At least I think it's the Spirit of God speaking. All right, so thus I say, I think I left off right here, thus the proper position to take when studying law and spirit is not to contrast law and spirit against one another, but rather to complement them with one another. They go hand in hand. They are both necessary in the life of a genuine follower of Yeshua. For indeed, as we've already noted from our quote from John MacArthur above from last week, go back and get podcast number 85 if you don't know what I'm talking about. As we noted... To be spirit-filled, John MacArthur told us, is to be controlled and filled with the words of Christ. 
It is to have the word of God, which is the words of Christ. It is to have the words of God permeate your every facet of being until you are saturated with the words of the Master. You are soaked in the words of the Messiah, which of course are the words of God, which are of course the very Bible that we read. Don't neglect reading the words of God. You've got to put the words of God within you, or you're going to be a victim of, of the godlessness that's sweeping across the earth today. I promise you that if you don't meditate on the words of God, if you don't put them down within you, if you don't memorize them, if you don't meditate on them over and over, if you don't study them uh, day and night, if you don't, I'm not trying, I'm not talking about some legalistic, um, uh, perfunctory uh, memorizing of scriptures or, or repeating of mantras uh, or, or Bible verses or, or chicken soup for the soul or something like that. I'm not talking about going over all that over and over day by day, repeating it, you know, endlessly babbling on. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stirring the fires of the Word of God and the Spirit of God within you uh, together, stirring those coals up together so that they can burn brightly, so that you can be hot, so that you can be on fire for God, uh, so that you can have the Word of God ready on your mind when you go to give a word of testimony to someone, so that you can recall verses they can come to your mind when you're going to witness to people that you meet on the street. That's what I'm talking about. And so that you can be able to defend yourself against the godless psychology that you can find in, in, your, in all the colleges today and on, that you turn on the TV, you find all the cycle babble, right? The next, this, this philosophy and that philosophy, all this other uh, junk that's going to be coming at you full speed in living color. Only the, only the Word of God, energized by the Spirit of God, is going to help you uh, set up a defense against that. Your mind is the battlefield. People, your mind is the battlefield. So, um, it's to have the Word of God permeate your every facet of being until you're saturated with the words of the Master. This is what John MacArthur mentioned last week. One can be filled with the Spirit only when controlled by the Word. Right, All of this is in accordance with what has already been promised in the Tanakh of old, to which we are certain Paul understood and agreed with. And this is why I think the devil mounted a, 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 a concerted attack against the word of God in the first century. Recall that in the first century, the only word of God that they had that was, that was um, uh, agreed upon and Paul's day was the, the pages of the Tanakh. The New Testament was still being put together. Messiah had come and gone, but his letters had not yet been codified, right? The Gospels had not yet been put together. And Paul himself was starting to write those 13 or so letters uh, of the 27 books of the New Testament. So there wasn't a, a, a canonized um, collection of scriptures that your New Testament Gentiles, your quote-unquote, could turn to in defense against all of the philosophies and the, and, the, and the ideologies of their day. What word of God, I'm using air quotes there, but what, what body of scriptures could they turn to in their defense? It was only the Tanakh at that time. And it's why uh, the adversary mount his attack against the words of God, uh, calling them Jewish scriptures, right? Um, getting the Gentiles to wrongfully believe that the that the scriptures of Israel belonged to Israel alone, that the, that the Torah was given to Israel alone, and that it didn't that that the Gentiles were not grafted in, that they didn't belong to the people group, and therefore that the words of God found in the Tanakh were not relevant for the Christian church. That all they need was these new letters that were being circulated by Paul, and that was going to actually keep them and sustain them in their walk as new believers. No, no, not so. You need the existing words of God 
And that's, again, why the devil mounted his attack against the word of God, because he knew what we're about to read here in the book of Ezekiel. For indeed, as I go on to say in my notes, when God promised Israel of old that he would take out the heart of stone, like we're going to read here in a moment, and replace it with a heart of flesh, he also promised to do something else very vitally important. He promised to write his law, the very same Torah given on Sinai. He promised to write those words on the hearts of those whom he redeemed. And the devil knew that. And I believe that's why the devil attacked the words of God very early on in the first century and made the Gentile Christians believe that these words were Jewish words and that they didn't need them anymore as Gentiles. You understand what I mean by it? And it's, it's that, it's that anti-Jewish, anti-Torah sentiment that has existed down to this very day. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 11 along with Ezekiel chapter 36, and we'll see that they're basically the same promise over and over again. First out of Ezekiel 11, starting in verse 19 and 20, just those two verses, ESV reads, quote, And I will give them one heart, this is God speaking, and a new spirit I will put within them. Right? There is the new spirit right there. We see it black and white, very hard to miss. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. This is a corporate promise given to corporate Israel that has not happened yet. These are promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Of course, they are being fulfilled on an individual basis for individual Israelites, Israelites who uh, avail themselves of this promise through, of course, the finished work of Messiah. But as a corporate group, this promise is future. This is future, so listen up. God says, I will remove the heart of stone from their, right, corporate Israel, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And look at the result, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God, end quote. So Ezekiel is writing what God is telling him to write. The Spirit of God is giving him a glimpse at the future redemption of Israel as a people group, right, as a whole. Again, we know that These promises have already uh, broken into the present, this kind of now but not yet principle that you can study in theology today. The idea that the the promises of the future that that the prophets wrote about actually have been, have broken into, the future has broken into the present so that the new covenant promises that Jeremiah spoke about that we're going to read here in a moment as well, and these new uh, this new heart promise that Ezekiel is uh, uh, explaining to the readers of his day, it's actually not something that, that your average individual Israelite of, of Ezekiel's day has to wait for the future. To be sure, if, he w- if we waited, he'd still be waiting. It's been like, what, 3,000 years now? And this, this still hasn't come to pass from Ezekiel's day, maybe 2,500 years or so. Um, so let's read it again also in the passage that we quoted in our liturgy. I quoted this in Hebrew. Now, here we get the English counterpart. And we read this every week. We've been reading it lately. Uh, we read it. It says, quote, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain I included, verse 29, in the English, even though I didn't read it in the liturgy. Verse 29 says... 
um, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. All right, so that's Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 29 out of the ESV. Again, it's it's important for us to remember as we're closing in my commentary tonight. The promises that we're reading about here in Ezekiel are promises that at the time that Ezekiel wrote them are future, future for the for the corporate people of Israel who were experiencing this this exile, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense for God to say, "I'll I'll gather you from the countries uh, that that you're uh, scattered to, and I'll bring you into your own land." Of course, they've been put in time out because they disobeyed God. They broke the commandment. They broke the covenant. They did not keep the words of God. And why didn't they? Because as a people group, they had a, st- a heart of stone. And the, the the key ingredient to understanding these verses, I hope I'm not speaking too fast. If I'm talking too fast, go back and listen to this audio. Slow it down to about half speed, and you'll hear what I'm trying to say. The important way to understand this passage in the book of Ezekiel is to understand that the reason corporate Israel could not keep the words of God was because they had a heart of stone as a people. Corporately speaking, they had a heart of stone. Individual Israelites from time to time had circumcised hearts, just like we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 10, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 30. They had a heart of flesh. They had gravitated to this faith in the coming one, this coming Messiah, this, this coming um, servant of the Lord that we read about in Isaiah chapter 53. They had, they had looked with eyes by faith into the future, and believed by faith that God was going to send someone who would ultimately remove sin from their midst, from them as an individual. And so that individual uh, became a member of the new covenant whenever that took place. The Spirit of God wrote the words of God on that individual's heart, and the stony heart was replaced with the fleshly heart, and the words of God were written on that heart of flesh. From an, from an individual perspective, this could take place uh, within the time period of Ezekiel. In fact, I'm of the impression that Ezekiel himself was a new covenant Jew. He was a he was a messianic Jew. He was already he spoke about this promise, but yet he himself was a participant of what was going to take place in the future for Israel as a corporate people. And so the key to understanding these verses is that the problem is with the heart. The problem isn't really with the words. The words are an innocent tool that are either used by the flesh or used by the spirit. You understand the this concept of innocent tool. And so with, with knowing that aspect about the Torah itself, that it itself is an, I'm using the word innocent with air quotes, meaning that it's, it's a tool that can be either used by the flesh to create more sin in your life, or it's a tool that can be used by the spirit to create sanctification and holiness in your life can be used either way. It just depends on you. It depends, depends on whether you're an old man or a new man. It depends on whether you're saved, or whether you're unsaved, or whether you're saved. So, that's how to understand this passage in the book of Ezekiel. And when we get to the New Testament, Paul, of course, is trying to explain all of this to the readers in the book of Galatians, as well as his readers at Rome. And as I pick up my commentary and close with this last uh, chapter here, I'm sorry, this last uh, paragraph right here, top of page 172. We, of course, who are believers, both Jew and Gentile, were also familiar with the famous passages out of Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31 and reading down to verse 34 that we're fond of reading. We, we, we know that this passage speaks of a new covenant, and it's a passage that, in case you didn't know it, it's quoted at length in Hebrews chapter 8, and then it's repeated again in, hap- in chapter 10 in a shortened form. This passage that we read about in Jeremiah 31 is a passage that also promises that God 
would write the Torah on the hearts of all those who participate in his new covenant. Look at footnote number 160. In my notes, it's the references to Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. And then uh, compare that from Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, as well as Hebrews 10, verse 16. And if we have time in my notes here, uh, then I'll read uh, parts of those passages. But I go on to say um, that this particular passage is a promise about the new covenant. And really, it's the only place uh, that we read about, the, we read these exact words, new covenant, or as it's translated by many people, New Testament. And that's a very interesting fact. Um, we, could, we could spend hours on that whole sermon, but I don't have time for it right now. I go on to conclude, in light of these data, I think it inconceivable that Paul would fail to make the positive connection between being genuinely spirit-led as a follower of Messiah coupled with walking out the Torah in one's everyday life. Understand my point? As I close, I think it's impossible that Paul could not have gone back to Ezekiel, the two passages I just read, as well as the Jeremiah passage, as well as the Deuteronomy 10, as well as Deuteronomy 30, which speaks about circumcision of the heart. Paul couldn't have gone back through the Tanakh of his day in the first century and noticed the connection between God placing his spirit on the inside and the corresponding um, result of being of walking by the Spirit, and he, uh, I'm sorry, walking into the ways of God, and from that Paul can draw this this theology out of the fruit of the Spirit is this genuine love for God and a genuine love for one's neighbor. The two commandments that all the law hangs hangs on that we talked about a few weeks back, right? The all of the law is summed up. Paul says in in Galatians chapter five around verse thirteen or fourteen, the law is summed is fulfilled in this in this. Uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, we read about, as well as the words of the Master. The two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. It's only in love, like we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter, the greatest of these, right? And abides faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. It's love that the law hangs on because it is love that allows us to um, uh, serve God with all our heart and to serve one another with all of our heart. Our heart is designed by God himself to function uh, within the capacity of love. And it's love on both a vertical level, which is heavenward, that is to say from heaven to earth. That's our relationship with God that we read about in the first, probably say, four commandments of the ten words, Ezekiel, uh, Exodus chapter 20. And then in the final six uh, uh, commandments, right, of the ten, um, it's love for our neighbor that we kind of read about. If you, I don't know if you ever thought about that for a moment, but the ten commandments can kind of be broken up into the first four, being, first four of the ten being uh, commandments that dictate our relationship with God, in other words, the vertical relationship, and then the final six uh, dictate and describe and outline our relationship to our fellow neighbor, to our fellow man, in other words, the horizontal relationship. And of course, if you put the vertical line next to the horizontal line, if you combine the two, you end up with a cross. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that clever? Um, it's the cross of Christ that allows us to to make the connection between heaven and earth and to make the connection with our fellow men. And so it's with that that we see that Paul um, teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit 
is the fruit that comes about as a result of us walking in love for one another, right? We read about that earlier in the in the book of Ephesians. Um, walking by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is in this uh, same passage where Paul says in verse 14, the whole also filled in one word, where you love your neighbor as yourself. And so um, we can conclude now that that it's the, the active work of the Spirit written on the heart of these Galatian Gentiles, as opposed to just the words of the Torah that are going to be um, becoming a part of the people, the community, if they just uh, you know, convert and become Jews. No spirit activity there. The works of the law uh, don't necessarily include or uh, imply or require the, the the spirit of the of, of God Himself, right? Anybody can 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 uh, engage in words of Torah, right? It doesn't require the, the the work of the spirit to to simply start keeping the commandments of God from a human perspective. And so Paul's trying to get them to to understand that the big change is the change that's brought on by the power of the Spirit who will then enable them to love one another as they should and then to bring about the genuine fruit of the Spirit in their lives, which will, of course, keep them from biting and devouring one another, like we read in verse um, uh, verse 15, devouring one another, um, uh, to prevent them from provoking one another and ending one another like we read in 526. It's going to keep them from the desires of the flesh, uh, the warring of the flesh that we read about in verses uh, 17 through 21, all of that nonsense of the works of the flesh. The, you know, that's what the Spirit of God is going to do in us in our lives. And we've got to continually spark that flame of the Spirit by meditating on the words of God and keeping in step with the Spirit. We're going to read about keeping in step with the Spirit when we get to verse 25 in my commentary. But in closing, I just want to give this heartfelt um, uh, suggestion to those of you who are listening to my commentary, just very quick to the point. The next time you read through the Torah, consider that the words of God are designed to work in concert when you read through the Torah, the first five books, that these words that, that you're reading, the words of Moshe, they're actually designed to work in concert with the Spirit of God in your life as a believer, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. The words of God that you're reading in the Torah, next time you read through it as a Gentile Christian, consider that the very words you're reading were actually designed by God to be written on your heart. And if you're a believer, they actually are already there. You just don't know they're there. Pull the whole scratch and sniff. Scratch your heart and sniff. What do you smell? That's Torah that just smell. Why? Because God wrote it on your heart. You guys remember the old scratch and sniffs books? You scratch it and you smell it. Oh, that smells like a banana. Oh, that smells like a lemon. Wow, that smells like a, a, a cheesecake or something like that. So the whole point is when you scratch your heart, you're supposed to smell the Torah as well because it's already there. It's been written on your heart. It's kind of a crude analogy, but don't, don't rake me over the coals over it. So next time you read through the Torah, Try reading it with eyes of the Spirit. Try considering that these are the very words of life that God designed to be written on your heart by the active agent of the Spirit to remind you of the words of the Master and to bring you into a right, right relationship with the God as you continually turn away from sin, turn away from the old man, and continue to walk down the path of sanctification. Amen? That's my challenge to you. Let's close with that. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. I pray that you continue to challenge us, Lord, as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Neither one of us have got the whole picture, Lord. We both have our hang-ups. We both have our heartaches. We both have our headaches. We both have our deficiencies. And that's why we, Lord, need 
your precious Ruach HaKodesh. We need the Holy Spirit that has already been poured out in abundance into our hearts through the, the, the finished work of Messiah. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit active in our life so that we can turn away from sin, so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you, so that we can find the words of God, and so that we can walk in them. Lord, help us to to continue to, like Paul says in, in Ephesians 5, 18, to be filled with the Spirit, like he says in, in uh, uh, Galatians 5, 18 here, to, to walk by the Spirit and to to um, uh, to let the the, the the be led by the Spirit. Lord, and to, to have the fruit of the Spirit, uh, uh, Galatians 5.22, uh, wash over us so that we can be uh, live a life according to the Spirit, Galatians 5.25, and keep in step with the Spirit, that same verse. Thank you, Lord, for all of these wonderful things. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.